Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Amen, church. Go ahead and be seated for me. Team, thanks for leading us. Welcome to Horizon West Church. Uh, It's good to be with you. Great is the faithfulness of our God. We put our hope in Jesus. He's the anchor to the ground. Our hope, our firm foundation. He's never, never let us down. I I can tell you there have been times in 41 years where my expectations uh, have been disappointed, but I have never seen Jesus fail me. He's never ceased to show up when I've needed him. He's never ceased to walk with me even in my sin and my failures. He has been faithful to me. We serve a faithful God. Amen? Amen. This week I got to uh, see the faithfulness of God in kind of a unique context. I was in Belize for the last seven days. Uh, How many of you have been to Belize, maybe on a a cruise, uh, something like that? Anybody from Belize? That would be cool. No? Not today? Okay. Uh, we did a, uh, a small team and I did a seven-day uh, exploration of a ministry down there called Hearts of Christ Ministry. I want to tell you just a little bit about that. And while I do, we're going to have some pictures scrolling. But Hearts of Christ is um, in Roaring Creek, Belize, just outside of the capital city, Belmopan. And uh, they discovered in the late 90s that children uh, by the thousands, maybe even tens of thousands, were unable to attend school because they couldn't afford the tuition, the textbooks, and the, the uh, uniforms. So nobody in Belize goes to school unless they pay to attend, even the government schools. And so this ministry, Hearts of Christ, began as a scholarship program for children in the, the nation of Belize to attend school. And out of that, really kind of connecting with uh, families in need, they also discovered uh, opportunities for building homes, for uh, doing feeding programs. And so for the last uh, 20 or so years, a little over 20 years, almost 25 They've been doing that ministry. Uh, Partnered together with them is a church called Evangel Temple. I got to uh, meet with the pastor there, a young man named Mervyn, um, encourage him. I got to preach the Sunday morning service. When you're a pastor and you travel overseas, you have to be ready for somebody to say, preach. (laughs) And so that's what happened. And so I preached the Sunday morning service. I also got to give a message at a three-day VBS that our team did. Uh, We did some uh, feeding. We went out into some of the uh, lowest of low-income villages uh, where people were desperately in need of food. And so a really, really awesome opportunity. In fact, I would ask that you pray as we as a church kind of uh, discern from the Lord how we might continue to partner with that ministry and that church, uh, not just on a one-off missions trip, but on continual, uh, in continual ways going forward. Would you do that uh, and pray for us in that endeavor? The, the one unfortunate part about the trip is that I came back totally sick. Um, And so I stand before you as a sick and broken man. And uh, I I tell you that to say, um, if you see me sit down at some point, this is second service, uh, just bear with me in that. Um, It shouldn't affect anything. But uh, normally what we would do in these kind of uh, circumstances is hand off to somebody. We got more than enough capable people who could stand up here and do this. What happened is it came on late enough in the week and strong enough that we didn't have time to kind of pivot. So I am leaning into the scripture that says God's grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in weakness. Amen? With that, let me uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to continue in our Awkward Conversations series this morning. I will have you know, though, that today's message will not be awkward, at least not from a content perspective. You don't need to 
take the kids away or anything like that. Um, this is going to be the last in a series on kind of marriage issues that were happening in the, in the city of Corinth, um, and then also that we can apply in our context as a 21st century church called Horizon West. Um, and so before I dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I want you to know, and you're going to see this, or at least you'll see allusions to this, that Paul is preaching or, or writing to the church at Corinth from a really unique perspective. Think of it like two lanes on a highway. On one side, Paul is, is watching the impending persecution of the church begin. A man named Nero has recently become the Caesar of Rome, and he is one bad dude. And so while persecution has not yet ramped up across the empire, the, the, the uh, clamps are kind of coming down on the church. And Paul, being a frontline missionary, is seeing it before the city of Corinth does. So he sees on one side the impending persecution of the church. On the other side, Paul perceives the imminent return of Christ. In other words, Paul believes that within his lifetime, Jesus will return for the church. So you've got persecution coming. You've got Jesus returning. And Paul is going to double down on what is most important when it comes to the Corinthian church. This week, as we went out into the villages to deliver food, uh, some of those who are the most in need are not English speakers. Belize is an English-speaking country, but they're Spanish speakers who have uh, come as refugees from places like Honduras or Guatemala, and they live in dire, dire conditions. And so while most of the week we were able to get by with our English, when we would deliver food, I had to put to use what terrible Spanish I have in my arsenal. And I found myself, as we delivered food, wanting to ask the people how I could pray for them. We always pray as we deliver food. And without the language to do so, I said this, que es importante ahora? <laughs> Which is an attempt at saying in Spanish, what is important now? And people were gracious, and I would hear things like niños or familia, and I would have just enough. Now, I still couldn't pray in Spanish. I had to just throw a couple padres and Jesuses in to, so they knew what I was doing. But, but that was the question, que es importante ahora? Or what is important now? As we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to begin at verse 25. I want you to see what Paul believes is important now for the church. And I would make the argument that they are as important of directives today in the 21st century for Horizon West Church as they were for a church in Corinth in the first. So, long passage, follow along with me as I read. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek one. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they did not. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as, if they were not re as though they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And so his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and in spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how she can please her husband. 
I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes and let them marry. It is not sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart and is under no necessity but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then the one who marries his betrothed does well and the one who refrains from marriage will do even better. Finally, verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. What Paul is doing for the church in Corinth and what he does in all of his letters is essentially lays down Spirit-directed ground rules for the church in the wake of Jesus' life and ministry on planet Earth. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, but all of a sudden you have this wild outbreak of gospel growth throughout the world, and people are going, what in the world do we do? You'll hear people sometimes say, you know, you can't trust Paul because he said a lot of things Jesus didn't say. Can I tell you that that's the point? (laughs) Jesus didn't say all those things because Jesus was operating at a 30,000-foot view with things like, take up your cross and follow me, turn the other cheek. Paul's going to get right down in the weeds directed by the Holy Spirit to spirit-filled people and say, this is what it looks like to take up your cross, married people. This is what it looks like to take up your cross, single people. And as he guides lovingly as a shepherd, the founding pastor of the church of Corinth, these believers into those directives, he's going to say first, number one most important thing is this, love Jesus. Now you might ask, where do you see that in the passage? The reality is Paul doesn't mention Jesus by name in the passage at all. But Jesus is the one filling Paul's mind and spirit as he proclaims. It is the power of the gospel that Paul has front and center as he teaches on issues of marriage. Many of you would remember that when Paul was formerly a Pharisee, a religious leader persecuting the church, he went to a place called Damascus, For what reason? None other than to take believers, followers of Jesus, and throw them into prison. Paul was operating under an assumption as a Pharisee, and the assumption went like this. The only one true God is Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. And in that assumption, he was 100% right. But connected to that, Paul believed that this new rabbi teacher, Yeshua, Jesus, was an enemy to the purposes of Yahweh. That that this was somebody who had come to stir up dissent among faithful Jewish people and he had to squash the rebellion. And on his way to Damascus, Paul, still a Pharisee, still a persecutor of the church, hears a voice from heaven. And we know that the voice was in Hebrew because he recounts it later in the book of Acts. And the voice says this, Yahweh Yeshua, I am Jesus. And in that moment, Paul's entire framework for his worldview was shattered into a thousand pieces and everything changed for, the, for, for Paul when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. The gospel became for Paul not only the most important thing in his life, it was, but it became the most urgent thing as well. You may not know that after Paul became a follower of Jesus, he was whisked away to Arabia, to the desert, where for three years, Jesus himself taught Paul the way of Christ. 
Before God would have Paul do anything for Jesus, he had to get to know Jesus personally. So Paul spends three years doing that. He then returns to Damascus, and for the next uh, more than a decade, all of Paul's ministry is between Damascus, where he became a, a follower of Jesus, and his hometown of Tarsus. Which means that it's not until 47 AD that Paul sets out on what we call his first missionary journey. And here's what happens from that point on. From 47 AD to 57 AD, a period of only 10 years, here's what Paul does. He plants anywhere from 14 to 20 churches. We're not sure the exact number, but upwards of 14 churches. He uh, walks by foot, he travels by foot, 10,000, more than 10,000 miles in sharing the gospel. And he writes significant portions of the New Testament. All of this was done in a 10-year period. Because in 57 AD, that persecution that he saw coming really came. And he spent most of the remaining years of his life imprisoned before being beheaded in Rome. So Paul had a vantage point of the gospel that was based on his love for Jesus that said, I must not only serve Jesus one day, I must serve him today. The balance of my life will be given for the cause of the gospel. Perhaps like you, I spend a, a lot of time thinking about my future. Anybody else do that? I think about what I, I hope to be true, what I believe will be true in my life. I, I see myself walking my daughters down the aisle in many, 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 many years from now. I, I see uh, coming to a place where I'm entering a new season of life, retiring from pastoral ministry as, a, as an old, old man and celebrating what God has done in this church and in the ministries that I've had a chance to serve. I, I picture sitting outside and my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren and maybe my great-great-grandchildren are playing all around me and Nikki and I are sitting in a rocking chair and we're holding hands and we're living the balance of our life together. And as good and beautiful as that picture is, there's an inherent danger when we view our future in a static way. We go, this is what I expect to happen. And the danger can become, we lose the urgency of the gospel now. That we just hope we make it to the finish line. We just hope we're faithful to the end. We hope we just put one foot in front of the other. And we miss all of the God-sized opportunities that are here and now for us. James chapter 4 verse 14, rebuking the idea that we have a fixed future that we can be sure of, says this, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And, and maybe you're somebody, you don't do this at a conscious level, but on the subconscious level you go, you know, someday... Someday I'm going to stop selling my soul to my work and my career and I'm going to make more time for my wife, my husband, for my children. And a year goes by and nothing has changed. Or you go, someday I'm, I'm really going to commit to a local church. I'm really going to get plugged in and I'm going to, I'm going to serve and I'm going to be consistent and I'm going to bring people with me on this journey together with a local church. And five years pass and nothing has changed. Or you say, God birthed in my heart a desire to start a particular ministry or, or to go on a missions trip or to write a book or do something great for the purposes of God. And ten years pass and still nothing has changed. A mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes, leaving nothing in its wake. Friends, the urgency of the gospel comes not merely from the fact that people could one day die and miss heaven 
but it comes from the fact that every day a person lives apart from Jesus, they are disconnected from the source of all that is life and joy and hope and peace. The mother in Belize who said to me, can you please see that my children are scholarships so they can go to school where they'll not only be educated but learn about Jesus. You know what my response had to be? I don't know. There aren't unlimited resources. I I don't know that I can promise that. The, The time is short, and yet I'm not able to step into that because of a lack of resources. Or, or when we saw the, the sticks that held up tarps where Guatemalan refugees were living in dire conditions. I asked somebody, I said, there was, there was a rainstorm the second night we were there. I said, what happens to these individuals when their tarp is all that they have protecting them from the rain? And the answer, they get wet. And, and while these are just physical, temporal things, they matter. And, and, and what can happen is that people because of their situation and their condition, miss that there is a God who loves them, who sent his son Jesus to save them, to redeem them, to give them abundant life, while we sit back on our hands and miss the opportunity before us. First and foremost, we are called to love Jesus, to be his hands and feet in the world. And then secondly, Paul says this, he encourages us to minimize distractions. I say minimize because the simple truth is that it's impossible to eradicate them completely, right? And Paul factors that in. Like Paul understands that just simply by living in a fallen world, there are going to be distractions all around us. John chapter 10 verse 10, Jesus says this. He says, the enemy, Satan, the devil, he comes to steal, to kill, and to what? To destroy. But here's the reality. If the enemy of our souls can't destroy a person's life, can't, can't bring absolute mayhem and chaos through, through that chink in the armor that you left unguarded, that weakness that he exploited, if he can't destroy you, he will distract you. Because all that he needs for you to be rendered ineffective for the gospel is to have your attention on something other than Jesus. To let something else be the, the driver of your life, to, to making more money, to having a bigger house, to, to spending more and more and more capital on our kids so they can have everything that this first world country offers. We are so easily distracted. And Paul says, I want, I want to help you minimize those distractions. For Paul, one of the most obvious ways that a person can do that is, is by addressing the relational obligations in their life. Verse 25, he he begins this way, now concerning the betrothed. When Paul says concerning this or that, what he's doing is he's responding to something they asked about. They're saying, Paul, we're now followers of Jesus. We're all in for the gospel, but I'm also in a relationship with somebody and we're not yet married. Or I'm married and I'm not sure that I should be. And, And what do I do with the gospel? What is important now in these circumstances? The word betrothed in verse 25 is the word parthenos. Now, some of you, that might jog another word that's familiar to to you, another Greek word. This is a temple behind me to the goddess Athena. She was a a virgin god. Do we have that picture? Um, And this is the the Parthenon. It's considered one of, if not the seven wonders of the world, maybe one of the top ten or twelve. It's this incredible uh, uh, structure, and they're actually restoring it even today. But it was called the Parthenon because it was dedicated to the goddess Athena, who was a Parthenos, which means a virgin. She was an unmarried goddess, so they believed. 
So when Paul says to the betrothed, what he's really saying is to the virgins, to those who are not yet married, those who are not yet engaged in sexual activity. He says, these are my instructions for you. This begs a question. This is not utterly important, but some of you will find it interesting. It begs a question. Why is the English Standard Version, what I preach from Sunday in and Sunday out, why is that the only version that translates this word as betrothed? Did you know that every other translation, King James, New American Standard, NIV, the message, all of them translate the word as virgin or some version of that? So why is the ESV saying betrothed? And I think what they're doing, what the, the scholars who are you know, translating, what they're doing is they're recognizing that deeper into the passage, Paul is going to use the same word and, and seems to be speaking of people who are in a committed relationship and not yet married. We might use the word engaged, people who have a fiancé. So these are not just people who are, have never married. This is specifically people who, yes, have never married, but they are in a committed relationship, and they're kind of going, should we step forward or step backward? Like, what does the gospel call us to do? And Paul will say, given the urgency of the gospel, given our love for Jesus and our minimizing of distractions, in Paul's mind, the answer is quite clear. The best thing you can do is remain unmarried. He says, verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. Now, I'm going to get ahead of myself, single people. Scripture does not call you to be single for the rest of your life. This is not a mandate that Paul is going to lay upon you. But again, between the coming persecution and what he perceives as the imminent return of Christ, Paul's saying, why would you step into a relational obligation that makes it harder for you to be freed up to serve Jesus? You may not know this is a very real issue on the mission field. In fact, uh, we have missionaries from Horizon West Church in First Orlando, and to a person, all of them have been impacted. Now, I'm not making a right or wrong statement here. All of them have been impacted by challenges that come with family, marriage and family. And again, Paul's not saying, so, so you know, it's, it's wrong to get married. He's just saying, this is just a matter of fact. This is just a reality. In fact, the subtext is really, if you are married, you should be a little distracted. We're not to be so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good, like, hey, sorry, baby, I can't serve you this week because I'm loving Jesus. But what we can do is continue to pursue after the heart of Christ, continue to go where he sends us. You know what happened this past week while I was in Belize? My wife stayed home with our three children, and she said these words to me. She said, baby, I'm so glad you're there. It has not been a burden here. We're praying for you. Do what God's called you to do. We'll see you when you get back. It was the, the, the thing that I looked forward to all week is I'm serving Jesus, not letting my family obligations stop me. But you know what I desired? I desired to get home to my family. And after a flight delay in Houston, I was able to do that last night. Right? It's, there is a natural conflict of interest or, or, or a distraction that can come when we have earthly and relational obligations. And that's the point that Paul wants to make. Let me ask this question. Let's get beyond relational obligations because I'll... I'm going to take a little liberty here. I hope I'm allowed to do this. While there is some hostility toward Christian faith, we're not experiencing persecution, at least not in America. And, and while we know that Christ could return at any moment, I don't have any clear directive from the Lord that the day is like tomorrow. So does it matter for us? And I would say this, let, let's get beyond relational obligations like marriage and let's ask a different question. What earthly things am I allowing to distract God's mission from my life. Because if all it was was your marriage, I would just praise God for that. 
You're ahead of the rest of us. But I think there's other distractions, other things that create anxiety that are a little more nefarious, that they don't have God's blessing like marriage does. Things like spending exorbitant amounts of time and money giving our kids the best when others are in need, or obsessively climbing the corporate ladder and overworking ourselves to death. We baptize that and saying, well, I'm just trying to care for my family. No, you're not. You're a workaholic. It's a distraction. Or, or maybe excessive video gaming or doom scrolling on social media. Listen, I'm really going to step on toes now. John Piper, many years ago, you'd have to substitute a couple of these social media platforms if it was current. John Piper, several years ago, said it may be that the great use of Facebook and Twitter on the day of judgment will be to prove our prayerlessness was not from lack of time. You go, man, I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to go on mission trips. I don't have time to serve. I'm so busy. And what we're really doing is just wasting time. We're allowing distractions of the world to knock us off our course. Now again, there is nothing wrong with having a job and working hard at it. There's nothing wrong with utilizing social media or giving your kids good things. But when those usurp the place of Christ, when they become our primary focus, we are distracted from the reason God put us on planet earth. Third and finally, Paul is going to direct the Corinthians and we receive the directive for ourselves in this way. He'll say, pursue holiness. Look again with me at verses 36 and 37. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is not sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So again, not right or wrong, but Paul's going to say, if, if you're able to stay unmarried, he thinks in his case, that's probably a better option. I might say in our context, maybe it's not. It's, it's what God has called you uniquely to do as a representative of his on the earth. And so I want to ask two questions if you're a single person in the room. These can be kind of a framework through which you make decisions about marriage. Because listen, our culture talks about it like you fall in love and you can't help but just, you know, it's like, no, no, no. You've got a decision to make. So first, you ask this question, single people. Will being married or marrying this particular individual cause me to be more or less effective in the gospel work that I've been called to? Like, what, what, what will marriage do in that regard? And I say more or less effective because I know many people, myself included, who are more effective in their ministry because they have a spouse. I told you about Nikki's prayers and support as I was in Belize last week. But we also, even while we were dating, we were leading VBS together at this really small church in my hometown of Sebring. And, we, and I was watching her lead, and I'm watching her serve, and I'm watching the way that teenage girls would just resonate with her, uh, with her personality and her gifts and her leadership. And I went, man, I'm going to lock this one down. <laughs> 13 years later, 14 years later, we're leading VBS in a larger context, and, and God just continues to bless. And had I missed the moment... I would not be more effective. I would be struggling as a single person who really should have got married 13 years ago. Now again, your story may not be mine, but that's my story. And part of my story is also question number two. So first, will I be more effective for the gospel? Number two, are my physical desires or passions such that to remain unmarried would make it nearly impossible to live a God-honoring life? 
for me, that was check one and check two. We're jumping into marriage. Like, this is what we're doing. Paul's going to make this massive concession where even if you think, you know, I'm going to be one of those people that's just going to go all over the world preaching the gospel. I'm one of these people that's just going to like read my Bible for hours on end. I'm going to be wholly devoted to Jesus. He says, hang on a second. If your fleshly impulses are such that you can't honor God because you're so distracted by those temptations and failing to them, then actually what is better is to maybe limit some of your so-called effectiveness so that you're pursuing holiness as you're called to pursue it. Friends, what good is a gospel message that we preach with our mouths if our lifestyle doesn't match it, match it up? One of the m- most telling areas in a person's life, in almost any person's life that I've seen, is in their sexuality. And Paul's going to say, if you, if you can't restrain that, and by the way, he's not referring to sinful impulses, He's referring to human impulses. He's saying, look, if they're strong enough, make it a little easier on yourself. Pursue a spouse and together serve the Lord and the work of the gospel. Finally, Paul is going to give some counsel to to those who have been widowed. And I'm not going to go deep into that because it's basically the exact same counsel he's been giving throughout. He's going to say, I think married, uh, or rather widowed man or widowed woman, I think it's better for you to remain single. That's Paul's perspective in Paul's day. But he makes it very clear that it is not wrong to pursue a husband or wife after your previous husband or wife has passed away. That was the story for my dad, married to my mom 26 years before she died. About 10 years later, he remarried, is married to this day. It's not wrong to pursue a spouse after the one you married has passed. But Paul's going to say it could create further distractions. And if you have children, there's additional things that you have to factor in. So Paul's going to give a very simple and straightforward uh, message. He's going to say, look, if that's you, if you're a widowed man or a widowed woman and you desire to be married, God bless you. But three words got to ring in your ears. Three words that are most important. He says, in the Lord. Meaning do not marry a person the first time or after being widowed and remarrying. Do not marry a person who doesn't love Jesus with all their heart. Women, that that guy might look and sound awesome. He might say all the right things. If his lifestyle doesn't match that of a disciple, you're headed for trouble. Women, uh, men, same thing. She might be the, the girl of your dreams, the woman of your dreams. If she's not in the Lord, and I mean truly sold out to Jesus with her life, it's going to be more harm than good. So marry in the Lord. As we prepare to close, I want you to know that Paul's vision for the Corinthian church that he himself founded is that they would become a people so changed by the gospel that their lives would change the world around them. Can I tell you that our vision for Horizon West Church is very much the same? That we would be a people so transformed by our life with Jesus that what happens on Sunday mornings, our programs and our services, that's just scratching the surface because the greatest impact happening is when you go into your neighborhoods, your workplaces, your schools, your communities, and the light of the gospel shines so strong that people can't help but ask the reason for the hope that is in you. And that when they ask, you point them to the person of Jesus who saved you, redeemed you, and poured his life into and over you. That is Paul's vision. It is ours as well. And so I want to close with a passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. We're going to have this up behind me. I want to say this together if you're able to in good faith and as your prayer. Would you stand with me wherever you're at?
In just a moment, we're going to say this together. Hebrews 12, chapter 12, verse 1. You're going to see these three imperatives or these three directives to love Jesus, to minimize distractions, to pursue holiness. As we read this out loud together, read with me. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. In Jesus' name, would you pray with me? God in heaven, we thank you for your good leadership in our lives. God, we thank you that you give us wisdom and counsel from the word. God, we thank you that you've put your Holy Spirit into our hearts so that even that counsel that you give, we're able to process in the unique way that you've wired us, the unique calling that you've placed upon us. God, very few of us are called to be vocational preachers or worship leaders, vocational missionaries. But God, every one of us is called to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to go into the world as disciple makers. Help us to do that to your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.